Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of reconnecting with Dr. Felice Gersh. We connected earlier this year on episode 221, discussing polycystic ovarian syndrome and metabolic health. Today, she joined me to deep dive into perimenopause and menopause. We spoke at length about the issues surrounding the Women's Health Initiative, how that has created an, a fearful environment, not only for providers, but also women with a tremendous amount of misinformation. We chatted about estrogen as a family of hormones estrogen-mimicking chemicals, the role of synthetic hormones, including calling oral contraceptives endocrine-disrupting chemicals, the importance of thyroid function, the pro-inflammatory state of a loss of estrogen in perimenopause and menopause, the importance of lifestyle, including nutrition and exercise to help with metabolism. We also spoke specifically about less common known changes that occur in menopause, including body odor changes, constipation, sarcopenia, osteoporosis, and vocal changes. I will definitely have Dr. Gersh back again. I hope our next podcast will be focused on women and mitochondrial health, and we will probably have a fourth in 2023 that will be encompassing of her newest book, menopause, the 50 things you need to know. It is one of my favorite resources to recommend to patients. I hope that you will find it as beneficial as I do. Dr. Gersh, on our last podcast, we really laser focused in on polycystic ovarian syndrome and you graciously agreed to come back again and now talk about middle age and perimenopause and menopause. But I would really love to start the conversation talking about the Women's Health Initiative as Many of the listeners know this is a study that came out in 2002, and I was just starting as a new nurse practitioner and being in cardiology kind of safely tucked away. I didn't really have to deal with the ramifications too much, but I would imagine it probably created some a significant ripple effect in your practice as a GYN. Well, I would say more like a tsunami, definitely, <laughs> because the whole paradigm of what hormones do if they're good or bad completely shifted when that study abruptly ended. I mean, it didn't end as planned. It ended because they felt right then and there that more harm was being incurred than benefit, and they just stopped the study. And it really created a huge, like 20-year ramification of harm. It's been like so devastating to women's health. And it really completely created a mass of misunderstanding about what hormones are and what they do and what menopause is even all about in the woman's body. And so I'm really happy to have this opportunity because the Women's Health Initiative was like so many things. It was begun with the best of intentions. It was actually believed at that point when it was being created which took a long time. It was a hugely expensive study funded by the um, National Institutes of Health. And it was designed to actually show all the benefits. That was the original thinking, the benefits that would come to women from being on hormones. But 
they already had an inkling, they should have had, from a previous study called the HERS study, which was to look at women who had already documented cardiovascular disease. And then they were given what was the hormone du jour, which was the conjugated equine estrogens, the brand name Premarin, combined with medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is a progestin. Progestin is a made-up word for a progesterone endocrine disruptor, meaning that it actually binds to progesterone receptors, but not with the same actual effect as if it were the human bioidentical produced progesterone. So in some cells, it could act as almost like a blocker, what we call an antagonist. In other cells, it can act as a promoter, like what we call an agonist. So it has different effects. And the drug that was used for the estrogen, the conjugated equine estrogens are actually hormones. It's not just estrogens. It's actually combined with other stuff like different androgens and other things that are coming out in a pregnant horse's urine. And this was all they could do initially in the day. They took this urine, they dried it, and they put it into a tablet form, and then they gave it to human women. And it actually did work to suppress hot flashes and night sweats, because although it was a horse's estrogen that it was trying to get rid of, that's why they call it conjugated. It has already gone through the liver, gone through a transformational process that changed it into becoming water soluble so it could go out with the urine. So the horse was trying to get rid of it. It didn't want it anymore. And it came along with many different kinds of estrogens that would be found in a horse, but never in a human. And so the, just the fundamental understanding of what is estrogen is so important because they use estrogen, they toss it around like it's all one thing. And estrogen it's a family of hormones. So there are different estrogens. So a horse makes equaline estrogens. They're different from humans. They have different molecular composition. And the human female has different forms of estrogen. The one that the ovary makes is called estradiol. Now, the placenta in pregnancy makes a different one as a dominant one. It also makes the other estradiol. But the dominant one is estriol. And then when you have conversion of androgens to estrogens in, for example, other peripheral tissues, other sites, the dominant organ that makes estrogen in menopausal women is fat or adipose tissue because it has the enzyme that can convert androgens predominantly coming from the adrenal gland into a different estrogen called estrone. And it turns out that estrogen can bind to different types of receptors and the different types of estrogens bind differently. And estrone, the dominant estrogen of menopausal women, binds to the alpha receptor. Estriol, the dominant one in pregnancy, binds to the beta. And then estradiol has a balance binding and there's other receptors on the cell membranes that we call like jeepers. So it's more complex. Every time we learn, there's more complexity. And these receptors are not static. They're dynamic, they're transformational, and they interact with each other. So you have really different effects. If you have one type of estrogen or another, it would be like saying you need a B vitamin. Well, which B vitamin? B vitamins are a family. Everybody knows that there's B1, B2, B12, you know, different Bs. They're not 
all the same. And estrogens are, the word is tossed around. And then on top of that, when they talk about estrogens, they throw in other endocrine disruptors, you know, chemicals that can interfere with every aspect of estrogen, its production, distribution, its degradation, its elimination, its receptor binding, and they throw that all in with estrogens. So no, the, a lot, and these are healthcare, like, professionals at the top of their game, like from major universities like Harvard, and they're tossing these terms around like they're all the same. And then, so here's my analogy, which is sounds crazy, but it really applies to the Women's Health Initiative. So they did this study with these different chemicals that are never found in a human body. The estrogen product the conjugated equine estrogen was given orally, which means it gets even transformed through the digestion and the liver so that when it enters the bloodstream, it enters with all these horse estrogens, plus the other is predominantly turned into estrone, which works on the binder that the receptor, which is called alpha. So it's not the same as having estradiol. So you do a study with strawberry flavored jelly beans. And you find, lo and behold, it increases cavities and diabetes and obesity. So what's the conclusion? Never eat an organic strawberry. I mean, like talk about you're making this incredible conclusion that has nothing to do with what you studied. And that's what they did. But in the paper itself, it said these conclusions only apply to what was studied. But that isn't how it was spoken about, even by the people involved in the study. They suddenly applied it across the board to every dose, every form, every type of estrogen. And then remember, what they used was medroxyprogesterone acetate, which turned out to be really bad, really, really bad for women. And that was actually underlying most of the bad outcome was actually not even from this other crazy stuff, the, you know, the Premarin, but actually from the medroxyprogesterone acetate. And so the bottom line is that none of this that I just said was understood, or I mean, we did know, but it wasn't conveyed to anywhere, one anywhere. And so the general message came out, don't prescribe hormones, don't prescribe them. And it was like sort of a dogma, don't prescribe them. But if you must, because they do work best for night sweats and hot flashes, they couldn't get off, uh, you know, get out of that one. So if you have to prescribe it, then you give at the very tiniest possible dose to try to suppress the symptoms for the very shortest period of time. And this dogma, which is erroneous, simply has stuck. And 20 years later, despite all the scientific data we have, it just, I, I'm working so hard to undo this like totally wrong mindset about hormones. And that when you study something that is not human, that has other effects that are actually technically endocrine disruptors, like, you know, I always say like, if I gave you a little plastic cup and I put it in some kind of special kind of modified Vitamix, you know, and it turned it into powder. So now I have a plastic cup that has been powderized, okay? And then I put it in a capsule and I said, here, take your hormone every day. This is it. You would say, that's my hormone. But that's really an analogy because the plastic is actually an endocrine disruptor, a xenoestrogen. It can interfere with estrogen in all sorts of ways. Well, so too is the conjugated equine estrogens. 
And the same thing for the progestin, you know, it's not progesterone. And this, inter- even in, I've read articles that are published in major prestigious journals, and they use the word progesterone when they're referring to this chemical man-made progestin. And like they're the same, and they're not the same. It's the same strawberry flavored jelly beans versus organic strawberries. And it's created massive confusion and fear and fear. So, you know, I'm just here to set the story right, (laughs) you know, just get it right. Let's talk about what really is the science of hormones, what really is menopause, and what it really does to a woman's organ systems in terms of everything, her metabolic status, and metabolism, which is tossed around that word a lot, is really the spark of life, the creation, distribution, storage, utilization of energy, energy, which is so critical because you want to eat to provide energy, but you don't want to overeat. You don't want to undereat. We have systems in the body in play to actually make everything just right, you know, but now they've been so mucked around with people don't know if they're hungry, they're not hungry, they eat, they, you know, they're so dysregulated, you know, all the rhythms of the body. And much of this is controlled through estradiol, the estrogen made by the ovaries, which some very smart people, and it wasn't me, came up with how to create an exact replica, a complete clone, completely indistinguishable from estradiol made by the ovaries. And we now, which we didn't have that way back years ago, but now we have that. So why are we not utilizing that and recognizing menopause for what it is? Natural, universal, and not healthful. And those all are not synonymous that, you know, everything that's natural isn't beneficial. Like, oh, how about tornadoes and hurricanes and and fires and tsunamis, you know? So there are natural things, we won't go into climate change, but there are natural things that have always happened that are not beneficial. And we need to look at death, you know, well, death is probably good for the planet as a whole, because just think there'd be no room for anyone new, but for the individual, not so great. So aging is inevitable, but not so great for the individual. And I look at aging, not as how many years you've lived, but on how many deficiencies you've acquired. And when you don't have hormones, you are definitely going to get major additional deficiencies because every organ system, including the gastrointestinal system, whereby you digest and absorb vital nutrients, macronutrients, micronutrients, is not going to function optimally. And that sets the stage for cellular dysfunction, immune dysfunction, and you know chronic inflammation, and all the, the diseases that we consider chronic diseases of aging. And all of these can be delayed. I'm not saying, you know, you can never get old and you can't have conditions, but all of these things can be really dramatically delayed when you incorporate hormones alongside of all the other essential lifestyle types of procedures and styles and living and all the things that you have to do, because it's not one thing. It's the total package of how you live your life but you can't be healthy optimally if you don't have the right amount, the right rhythms, 
of these essential ingredients. I call them the life hormones, not sex hormones, life hormones, or estradiol in our progesterone. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar 
without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. I think you did such a beautiful job explaining not only the Women's Health Initiative, but the differentiators between synthetic hormones versus bioidentical hormones. Uh, You know, I was coming of age as a new nurse practitioner in the early 2000s, and I watched my mom and all of her sisters stop all of their hormones. Uh And I am now looking at my aunts, all of whom I'm very close to and love, And I'm starting to see some of the side effects for those that have not been on bioidentical replacement of hormones, you know, the cognitive changes, bone health issues, heart health issues. And I really think that perhaps my generation, as we are kind of evolving into menopause, as you mentioned, it's a natural process to no longer have periods of fertility, but with greater awareness. And I think many of us are looking at this from a point of empowerment that we now know way more than perhaps we did 20 years ago, but we're starting to see the impact of women and providers. And I I say all the time, there's a whole generation of providers and a whole generation of women who are fearful of hormones, and it shouldn't be that way. Oh my goodness. I see it every day. Like yesterday I had patients come in and their doctor said, no way can you be on hormones. You can't be on hormones. They're bad for you. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, like back to the drawing board, you know, this person doesn't understand that if you understand like a basic premise of what does a hormone do, it delivers information, vital information to the cell. So basically it can trigger the production of signaling agents. It can produce through the nucleus for nuclear receptors. It can produce vital enzymes and proteins, but None of this will happen properly if you don't have the signal to tell the cell what to do. So it's like, you know, the old, you know, sort of like adage that, you know, you what are you going to do with an orchestra if you don't have a conductor? So you can have great musicians, but if the conductor never shows up and tells them what to do, they're going to be silent or they're going to create noise because without the conductor, they're going to be off each section, you know, the winds and the percussionists and and the, the strings, they're all going to be off like one measure or even a few notes. So, it, it is, so it's going to be noise. You have to have the great coordinator of all the organ systems to work in sync in the same time zone and to do the right things so that one thing ends up in the proper sequence to the next. And that requires these vital hormones. And they interact. Like a lot of people don't know that, for example, estradiol upregulates, so it makes more functional, the receptors for thyroid hormone. So that's why every woman, when she goes into menopause, she often, well, a lot of them, they go to a doctor and they say, I Googled this, you know, Dr. Google said, these are the symptoms of low thyroid. And guess what? I have all of them. I must have low thyroid. And then the tests are done and the thyroid 
levels are within the reference range for what always that means either, you know, that means 95% of random people had from this value to this value, but you're in that range. So they say you're fine. And then, you know, of course they think, oh, another woman who needs, you know, antidepressants or something, right? Tranquilizers, like she's another mental case. And she is hypothyroid because it doesn't matter how much hormone you have if it doesn't work properly on the receptor. We know that very well with insulin. People talk about insulin resistance. You can have plenty of insulin, but it isn't working to get the glucose from the blood into the cell. So, And then if you have plenty of thyroid hormone, but it's not getting onto the receptor to create the desired effect in the cell, then it doesn't matter because it's the equivalent of being hypothyroid. And so testosterone receptors are dependent on estradiol receptors and progesterone and estradiol, they up and down regulate each other's receptors. I mean, it's a very complex and dynamic system that's going on that changes how cells work. And we're talking about other systems as well, signaling systems, like these hormones, like estradiol work along with, and this is like trendy now, like peptides, a lot of people are, oh, peptides, you know, so like what tells the peptides to do anything? I mean, estradiol. And then people are talking about like these magical coenzymes and these other enzymes called the sirtuins. And there's the cert one, two, three, and they're very involved in metabolism and in burning fat and rejuvenation. So they're often triggered, as you well know, by fasting. Well, guess what? NAD, which is a coenzyme for the enzyme. Now, if you don't have the coenzyme, the enzyme is like mega sluggish, like it won't work. So it's like the on switch, you know, you need to have this coenzyme that is NAD for the sirtuins. Well, guess what? They're all interrelated in, in a bi-directional way, by the way, the sirtuins and the estradiol, bi-directional, they work together like so many things, they're not one direction. And then you need estradiol for proper function of these enzymes, you know, these their sirtuins are called histone deacetylases, which are triggered, like we said, by stressors like fasting, but you need that estradiol there. So I keep saying, you know, a lot of the systems in the body that people are focusing on, and even the people who are advocating for these things, they don't get it that these won't work properly if you don't have the estradiol. And then when you look at, you can learn a lot by looking at reproduction. I keep going back to that. I've figured this out because I did thousands of deliveries, that the body's immune system has to make drastic changes to allow a pregnancy to occur. And all of the enzyme systems, the signaling agents, they all exist within the reproductive system, as well as like the circulatory system. People don't even know that. Like cardiologists, like you started in cardiology, they don't have any clue, for example, that the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system is all of those agents, they're in the reproductive tract too. You know, this is, everything's about fertility and reproduction. Sorry, guys, whether you want to have babies or not, that's how we evolved. And every system links to that, including, of course, the immune system. And pregnancy is when you have to have massive adaptations of the immune system. So if you look at like the hormones, like what happens, you've got to downregulate the innate immune system so it doesn't attack and kill the fetus. So what calms down that system? Well, guess what? It's the progesterone is very big on acting as a calming agent. So what happens if you don't have that? And that in the brain, 
it actually can help to reduce neuroinflammation, as can estradiol. So everything is working in this beautiful, you know, symbiotic coordinated way to regulate the immune system, which ultimately is what they call aging, right? Inflammaging. And young people who have this accelerated inflammatory state of that's chronic, they now someone labeled it metaflammaging, you know, metabolic issues leading to chronic states of inflammation. Well, every immune cell in the body has receptors for these vital hormones, every immune cell. And why is that? Well, of course, because you've got to regulate the immune system during pregnancy. And so what's so interesting is that low levels of estradiol are more pro-inflammatory. If you think about the menstrual cycle, you know, you can learn so much from female reproductive system, during the menstrual cycle, estradiol levels are super low and it's a pro-inflammatory state. You have inflammation in the uterus. You produce these pro-inflammatory agents called prostaglandins that create a little bit of cramping. It's supposed to be like a mini, mini, mini labor. You get a little cramping, the same system kind of in more like megastates is what happens that initiates labor. So you have a little bit of cramping because you're getting rid of this old dead lining tissue, which has to come out. But at the same time, you have to regulate the immune cells because some of this dead dying tissue is gonna come out the fallopian tubes into the pelvis. And so you have to program the immune cells. And this is all done through the endocannabinoid system. And it's all done through the hormones so that you don't have an overabundance of inflammation and that the immune cells gobble up these dead dying cells that are coming out from the uterine lining. And that becomes very dysregulated in women, for example, who have endometriosis. And it's now we have triggered that, you know, tied that back to types of endocrine disruptors for progesterone. You know, so we learn a lot from these different conditions and so on. And so we have this sort of more inflammatory state that needs to be controlled. And if you have really massive menstrual cramps, that's a sign of too much inflammation. And that can be due to hormonal imbalances, nutrient imbalances, chronic stress, environmental toxicants, nothing simple. You got to, that's why you have to be like the medical detective. And then, you know, when you are having a spike of estradiol that precedes ovulation, that actually becomes very anti-inflammatory because you don't want the immune cells to attack the incoming sperm or the newly created embryo. I mean, the whole thing is so interactive and that's why understanding how hormones work in the body, then it will set the stage for understanding best ways to give hormones when our ovaries cease to make them and understanding that reproduction being the prime directive of life, when we lose reproductive capability with menopause, we also lose the ability to regulate all the systems that are essential for reproductive success because you have to have, for example, a very robust circulatory system, the heart has to pump way more blood because the blood volume about doubles in a pregnant woman. So the female heart is quite different, even though it looks kind of the same than the male heart. It is much more capable of producing energy, but without estradiol, it loses that energy and it develops what's called mild diastolic dysfunction, which is sort of a, a stiffening or an energy deficient heart, which can be seen on an echocardiogram and is usually ignored by the cardiologists who say, eh, we see that all the time. Yeah, but it's a sign that the heart is suffering from lack of 
energy and it's stiffer. And that can lead to what's called um, you know, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. It's just like the it's a different kind of a heart failure than what is called generally congestive heart failure, but it can lead into congestive heart failure. So, I mean, we need to understand the differences between male and female physiology with the immune system. Women have way more immune cells than men. Women make more antibodies. They are able to amount a bigger, robust, inflammatory response to an infectious agent. Like women are better at surviving sepsis than men prior to menopause. So understanding how the female body works and why it works that way and how these hormones are essential for every system in the body will help to understand the consequences, this really cataclysmic you know, event that is really the loss of ovarian function. And it's really important to stop even thinking of menopause as a moment in time, which is defined menopause by 12 consecutive months without a spontaneous bleed. So where'd that come from? Well, that was made up. Why is it not 13 months? Could it be six months? It could be whatever you make it up to be. So stop thinking of it that way. Think of menopause as a process of ovarian aging or senescence. And it starts long before that last official menstrual period, because we never know that except in hindsight, if you even let that happen. My patients, I don't want that to happen. Why would I want them to go 12 months in a hormone severe deficiency state? What am I accomplishing? Nothing. And so we already know that vascular disease, like thickening of the lining of the arteries, you know, inflammation, plaque development, hypertension developing, which is not an early sign of vascular disease. That's already you got advanced state by the time you have hypertension. All of that is happening during the years preceding that last menstrual cycle as the hormones go in this sort of crazy downward trajectory with up and down spikes. It's crazy time. That's why, you know, it's like a a crazy roller coaster. But we need to understand that if we really want to optimize female health and then understand that when a woman gets to that stage of life, I call it her health savings account, right? So what she has done all those decades preceding menopause will set the stage for how she's going to go through menopause in terms of the degree of symptoms and and also the sequela. So if you go into menopause with a great set of bones and muscles, and your brain is working well, you know, you're not in a state of brain fog, you have a great cardiovascular system, you know, lots of muscles. If you enter menopause in great shape, then what I say is that your engines on your plane in perimenopause, if you have a two engine plane, one engine goes out, but you still fly, Yeah, but you have one engine out. But when you hit full blown, no more hormones from your ovary state, you know, you testosterone is a separate thing, but no more ovulation, no more estrogen in the form of estradiol, no more progesterone, then you got two engines out. So at that point, depending on the health you have at that point, you either go into a nosedive, crash and burn, or your plane turns into a glider and you get to kind of sail the winds. You are ultimately going to go down and hit the earth, but you can do it gradually and smoothly. And I want to turn it into a really long journey as a glider, and but you will do better. And I can do better as a doctor if you enter the menopausal transition 
in a state of health rather than metabolic chaos, which we know many women who are in the reproductive years are not exactly in prime health. So, you know, you're never, it's never too early, like from conception on to try to be healthy because we know that everything starts actually, you know, even prior to conception with the state of the eggs in the mother before she even gets, you know, to get them fertilized. So, you know, that's why I'm into big preconceptual planning and health, because you really got to plan for the future very early to get through all those menopause years and have what is everybody's goal, right? Healthy longevity, you know, that you live to be, I, I just say 100, maybe you can get to 120, but I'm just being very modest here. Let's get you to 100 in great shape that you can live a really high quality life as opposed to just existing. And you can't have that really, unless you're like this one in a million, there's always the exception, you point to the exception to the rule, someone who has genes no one's ever seen before, you know, but in general, okay, in the vast majority of human females, you can't have optimal health and functioning without having those hormones. And it's so critical to not be afraid of them, to embrace them, to love them, and understand that your ovaries didn't go from being your friends to suddenly producing these wonderful hormones to suddenly when they stop working, which can be anywhere really over 20 years, you know, that you can have menopause, that from being our friends, our friendly hormones to being our deadly hormones, because the average age of menopause, what's called normal menopause in the US is 45 to 55. That's a decade right there. Okay. And so if a woman goes in menopause at 45 or 55, 10 years apart, her estrogen in the form of estradiol becomes evil for this woman at 45, but it's okay until this woman at 55. And then there's late menopause, which is 55 plus, and then early, which is 40 up to 45. And then, which unfortunately I fell into that group, I think, because I was up at night all the time, circadian rhythm problems with all those deliveries. And then premature menopause, which is before the age of 40. So there's quite a bit of range. So if you figure like 40 to 60, that's going to encompass the vast majority of women who go into menopause. That's 20 years. So women who have an early menopause, like I did at 43, they are supposed to be hormone deficient for you know, an extra decade or more than another woman. And then that we already know what happens women who have early onset of menopause have early onset of all the diseases of aging. Like, duh, it's not how many years you've lived, it's how many years you've lived without your hormones, you know? So that's why I'm a huge advocate. I never stop saying menopause is natural, but that doesn't matter. Everything we do in medicine is to counter so-called natural. Like, come on, replacing joints is natural. Putting in new lenses for your eyes to replace your cataracts is natural. Stents in your arteries are natural. All those pharmaceuticals are natural. I'm trying to do something that is not natural, but in a natural way so that you don't end up with all that other unnatural bad consequence and then all the other interventions so that you just replace what's missing that nature didn't really care about you having because you're no longer reproductive. And maybe for the planet and the species, maybe you're not so important as an individual, but we kind of say, you know, I'm not giving up my seat anytime soon, but I want to enjoy my stay, you know? So it's, it's, I mean, we're going to be here. Why are we just promoting longevity 
so we can keep people alive with no quality of life. I just want to be super proactive and understand what aging is really about, what hormones are about, and just say, okay, so we'll just give it. Like, how great is that? How simple is that to give hormones to recreate the hormonal environment of a young, healthy, reproductive woman in an older woman. In fact, they did this with testosterone. They gave males who were metabolically unhealthy, 65-ish males, testosterone levels to equal that of a robust, healthy 19-year-old guy. And guess what happened? They lost belly fat. They put on muscle mass. They had cognitive improvement. Oh my gosh, like hormones actually change how you feel, how your body works. Like, duh. Of course, if somebody took out someone's thyroid gland because they had a big benign tumor, say this happens, nobody would say, well, that's okay. Go on Prozac. That's okay. Meditate more. You don't have a thyroid gland. You don't have any thyroid. Not every, all those other things, not Prozac, but all those other things can be beneficial, but they're not going to replace your thyroid hormone that's missing. When you don't have the estradiol and the progesterone coming from your ovaries, nothing else is going to replace them other than them, you know? So let's just give women what they lose so that they can stay the beautiful, healthy creatures that they have been, hopefully and want to be. And if they weren't that healthy before, let's, it's never too late as long as you're here to do better, you know, to help them live much better lives and start, you know, start from where you are and build a better future. Well, thank you for so much insights and advocacy for women, because I still feel like every day, I know you must get these questions. People express fear about if they start hormones, what's going to happen are they going to gain weight, which unfortunately is a common concern that there's a lot of fear mongering about hormones in general. But if you're just understanding that even at a cellular level, replacing these hormones has a huge net impact, not only in your quality of life, but the way you sleep, the way you interact with your family and your loved ones, your you know personal and private relationships as well. Let's really pivot a little bit and let's talk about the changes that are occurring in perimenopause to kind of set our bodies up. I feel like in particular, even though I trained at a big research hospital, even though I have a lot of medical professionals in my family, nothing prepared me for perimenopause. Absolutely nothing. I don't recall ever having a conversation about it with my GYN. And when I did actually have an appointment and I was explaining to her, my periods were getting very heavy. It just so coincided that my yearly annual exam and my GYN said, oh my gosh, your periods are so heavy. I said, yes, I've been telling you this. And the options were that were given to me were oral contraceptives, an IUD, an ablation. Or she said, you know, you're in your early 40s. You're done having kids. We could just do a partial hysterectomy. And I just said, time out. (laughs) This is not what I want to be doing. But let's kind of unpack what's starting to happen physiologically in these perimenopausal years. As you mentioned, can be a protracted amount of time, could be 10 to 15 years prior to women actually go into menopause. But it's these changes. I I jokingly say, you know, God has a sense of humor because I have teenagers and I'm going through reverse puberty. And so I think it's important for women to really understand like what's changing in our bodies that's contributing to symptoms that maybe initially we don't think are a big deal, but then we realize three or four years later, like the sleep is bad, the anxiety and depression are bad, the periods are heavy, they're gaining weight, The things that they used to do to help maintain body composition and overall health are no longer working for them. 
Well, honestly, perimenopause and the menopausal transition is more difficult to treat than full-blown menopause because you still have ovarian function, but it's unpredictable. So what happens is, you know, you have a lowered amount of eggs. You also have less healthy eggs. So they are not going to respond to the same degree from the stimulus from the brain through the pituitary, which then the pituitary makes these hormones called gonadotropins. LH, luteinizing hormone, and FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. So the brain is the great sensor of the body. So in the beginning, what's going to happen is because you have fewer eggs and you have they're not as healthy, the amount of estradiol that's going to be produced and also then ultimately progesterone is less. And often when I do testing like menstrual mapping, I will see that even though they're still ovulating, even the ones who are still having regular cycles, the amounts of hormones are is less. And then of course, as things progress, the cycles can become quite changed. Often the luteal phase, the time after ovulation until the bleeding, which is when the progesterone is produced, is not as done as well. So you have a shorter luteal phase. So you have shorter cycles in terms of like, maybe you had 28, it goes down to even 21. And that's part of the ovarian aging process, which would of course, as well, reflect on fertility. Of course, there's a very strong correlation between ovarian aging and reduced fertility. Like every woman knows at in the early forties, her fertility is nothing like it was in the early twenties. And this is a consequence of the quality of eggs and the then relating to the production of these hormones. And this is going to change the cycles. And so these can have, women can have very different types of cycles because the uterine lining tissue, the endometrium grows and is transformed by these hormones. And so what happens, what can happen that can give you these crazy heavy periods and then also some women get very sporadic periods. It's like, it's very unpredictable, even for the same woman over time. And that's why there's no, everyone is the same. It's such a unique time for each woman. But as the egg quality and production of estradiol goes down, then the brain senses, senses this and says, oh, I need more estradiol produced. So it triggers more production of LH and FSH from the pituitary gland. Now, when you produce more LH, the precursor to all estradiol, 100%, no exceptions, is testosterone. So the ovary makes testosterone in one group of cells, and then the testosterone that's produced travels, oops, oops, goes to another part, to the granulosa cells, where it's then converted through the enzyme aromatase into estradiol. And when things are right, you have this other little hormone called anti-mullerian hormone, which is a crazy name. I wish they would change it to follicle recruiting hormone because in the ovaries, that's what it does. And it recruits all these little um, follicles. And each one is saying, choose me, choose me. I want to be the ovulating one. But ultimately one, or sometimes two, then you get twins, is chosen. And that's done through some magical thing. We don't totally understand how which egg is chosen, but it gets ovulated out after you get an LH surge and then you have a little LH, uh, FSH surge. And then that shuts down the production of anti-mullerian hormone. So you stop making and recruiting all those follicles, you get the ovulation, and then you have 
the what's remaining turn into the corpus luteum. That's another structure in the ovary that produces the progesterone. So what happens though, as you're transitioning into the menopause is that you have higher amounts of LH and FSH produced because the ovary is less responsive. But if you push it hard enough, kind of like once again, like think of insulin resistance in the stages that evolve into diabetes when you're in that pre-diabetes phase, your pancreas will make more insulin. And when you have more, it will help control the glucose and help get the glucose. So you can have normal blood sugars, but if you check insulin levels, they'll be high. So you can still sort of have normal estrogen levels, but the FSH and LH can go up and down and be higher. And what happens when you have more LH is you will make more testosterone. That's why many perimenopausal women will say, what the heck? Talk about reverse puberty. Why am I getting acne? because they actually are making more testosterone because they, that's the precursor to estradiol. And the brain is saying, please, ovaries, give me more estradiol. And so the only way to get it is by making more testosterone. But if you have like a little glitch in the production line, you know, and so you're not converting it as efficiently or as well into estradiol, you end up with a surplus, too much testosterone. And then suddenly, uh-oh, what the heck? Like, why am I getting like whiskers? Like, what the heck is this? <laughs> Many women, as they're approaching menopause, like, what is happening? I'm getting acne. I'm getting facial hair. And not only that, where's the hair on my head going? You know, I'm getting androgenic alopecia. So this is like a problem. And nobody, no woman likes this at all. But this is part of that process. Now, in addition, the estradiol level that's produced is going to be less. And then they're going to often make a lower amount of progesterone. So this can change how the uterine lining is growing and then shedding. So you can have changes. You can have some irregular spotting. You may have mid-cycle spotting. You may skip ovulation altogether some months. You may have heavier bleeding because you don't have enough progesterone to properly convert the lining into what we call secretory. So estradiol is a growth type of hormone. Now, some people think that's bad, evil, growing. No, no, no. Growth is what we do when we rejuvenate, when we heal, when we replace dead cells. That's how you get a burn or a cut on your skin. Estradiol to the rescue. In fact, the skin makes estradiol. That's how men get a lot of estradiol. They make it from their testosterone through the enzyme aromatase that's present in many organs peripherally. But after menopause, well, women don't have a lot of testosterone. So they even if, and their systems aren't really set up to do that to the degree that men can do it. But that's how men have tons of estradiol in their body, but it's produced locally from their testosterone. It's not circulating. But, you know, so it's really important for men to have plenty of testosterone. Like I said, when they tested, they did studies in older men, they did great when they had adequate amounts of testosterone. But a lot of the action is actually by its conversion into estradiol. So the bottom line is a growth hormone is essential for rejuvenation, for neuro and mitogenesis, to create new neurons, to create new cells. So it, it helps to create like vascular endothelial growth factor, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, things that create new blood vessels, new tissue, you know, brain health. But you like all growth, you want to have control growth. You want a city that just grows out of control? No. And the part of the control system 
for the estradiol is the progesterone. So progesterone, when it comes on the scene after ovulation, it stops that growth, what we call proliferation. And it changes into this like lush garden that we call secretory. But if, and then when you're not pregnant and these, the progesterone drops sort of, you know, pretty acutely, then everything sheds out. But what happens when you don't have enough progesterone because you're not making good ovulations and you're not, you know, things are not quite right. The corpus luteum isn't right. And you have a shorter luteal phase. So you're not even getting as many days of your progesterone and you don't make the proper secretory status. You don't have proper complete shedding. So if you don't get all the dead lining out, then it keeps kind of trying to get out and blood vessels are open and that's where the blood is coming from. What the menstrual period is about is trying to get rid of the tissue. The blood just comes along for the right, you know? And you also need to have the myometrial cells, the muscle cells to contract, to act like a tourniquet on those blood vessels. But a lot of that is triggered through um, systems of calcium channels and everything that are all hormonally controlled. So if your hormones are even a little bit out of whack, all these systems can be a little bit offline, so they're not working properly. And that's where sometimes giving supplemental bioidentical hormones, as opposed to birth control pills, which are endocrine disruptors and shut down your hormones altogether and have a lot of other negative effects, that you can try to supplement with human bioidentical hormones understanding what's going on. And you can actually measure the hormones through an entire menstrual cycle with menstrual mapping. Of course, it's one cycle and that's not necessarily every cycle. There can be different, but you can get a good idea. So you don't even have to be guessing. You can actually measure, or of course, sometimes you could just give it your best clinical guess as well. But understanding the mechanisms will help prevent a lot of surgeries, especially like hysterectomies. And by the way, they now have shown that the uterus has a communication with the brain. Isn't that interesting? That if you take the uterus out before, well, nobody's done the studies in really elderly women, but in you know women who still have functioning of their ovaries, you actually have some cognitive decline. The uterus, everything's more complicated than we ever guessed. So if you don't need to take out an organ, then please don't take out the organ. You know, Don't say it's past its prime or you're not gonna have babies anymore. Things are more complicated than we ever thought the way that they're signaling agents and things communicate. So, you know, we just, I mean, if you have to, if you have cancer, that's another story, but don't take it out if you don't have to take it out, especially like in your circumstances, even the fact that that was offered makes my hair stand on end, you know, but the thing, and by the way, the Marina IUD is not a progesterone IUD. It has levonorgestrel, which is a multiple endocrine disruptor, and it does get absorbed systemically and half of women stop the first couple of years or so at least stop ovulating. So it's going to change their estrogen production and their rhythms. So, you know, you just have to call a spade a spade. Sometimes you have to give pharmaceuticals, including contraceptive hormones and so on to control like out of control bleeding while you get things under control. But, you know, it's not supposed to be a long-term solution and it's not giving women hormones to control. They're not human hormones. I wish they would just call them endocrine disruptors instead of hormones because it gives people the wrong idea. They're really, it's like, you know, like you wouldn't lick plastic every day and say, I'm getting my hormone <laughs> jokes. But I mean, that's how I see it 
with the skull and crossbones, you know, slow poison, slow poison. It's not going to kill you, but you there's a lot of slow poisons. We live in a world of slow poison. So, you know, we definitely don't want to intentionally put them in our bodies. We get exposed to enough unintentionally as it is. So perimenopause is really interesting because you can have giant spikes. So when you your estrogen level goes down, and then the brain says more estrogen, and I'm saying estrogen, but and it's estradiol. And so it ups the FSH and LH. So you get this big surge. And then if you're still got functioning ovaries, although not so great, you may put out two eggs. And then that's why women in the perimenopause, early 40s, for example, have more twins, fraternal twins, than at any other age in a woman because of this like hyperstim. It's like what we do if we're collecting eggs for you know, egg freezing or to create embryos for IVF, we hyperstim because we don't want to have women go through like hundreds of cycles where we get one egg each time. So they put, try to hyperstim to get a bunch of eggs out. And they, they use like FSH, LH equivalents. And, but the nature can do that and you can hyperstim yourself. And part of, you know, so you could get pregnant with twins if that's, that could happen. But if say that doesn't happen, what happens when you hyperstim? You produce more estradiol. So this is the only time in a woman's life when she can have make crazy amounts. So normally, even at the peak of estradiol, it's under 500. That would be the one day when she has her spike. But I've seen levels in perimenopausal women, 800 something. It's like, no wonder they don't feel great because estradiol is wonderful. But women who get hyperstimmed, like when we're doing triggering, you know, for egg collection or for embryo making, that's a dangerous thing when you hyperstim and you make too much estrogen. You know, like you can die from water, but you can't live without water. That's, you know, you can always have too much of a good thing. And too much estradiol can be responsible for a lot of the terrible symptoms, like suddenly having migraines and edema. So estradiol is more like fluid retaining, whereas progesterone is more like a diuretic. You know, everything is yin yang. I don't know how the Chinese were so smart, you know, the push, pull, hot, cold. And so you have this, you know, fluid retention, fluid, you know, exit. And so if you have really, really high estradiol, you can have like, suddenly I'm like puffy and I have bloating and estradiol tends to be more constipating, progesterone, the, uh, you know, more laxative effect. And so you, I'm not constipated, I'm bloating, I have a headache, you know, Oh my gosh, you know, and it's the good news is it's temporary. Chris, that's like, I like liken it to if you go to a fireworks show and right before the end of the fireworks and the whole show is over, they have this unbelievable display. It's like the whole sky is lit up with all these fireworks and then boom, total blackness, right? So that's what you get. You get this explosion of estradiol and then poof, it's all gone. You know, then, you, you know, like, this is like craziness, but this is like the years of, of it. And then in terms of mood, because of these fluctuating hormones and, and then the ultimate downward. So it's like you're going down, but along the way down, you're getting these giant spikes up. Okay. So, wow, what a roller coaster. But because the ultimate trajectory is down and estradiol is anxiolytic, it reduces anxiety. It's a mood stabilizer. And a lot of this probably works through the endocannabinoid system, like maybe for another day, you know, that's a whole like fatty acid. These come from omega-6s. That's why I have to defend omega-6. They're not pro-inflammatory. They are if you get them from processed food with 
oxidized oils, but, you know, it's essential to life and they're not pro or anti-inflammatory. They're directed in the direction the body needs them to go, depending on the situation. And the whole endocannabinoid system derives from omega-6s and they are, you know, anxiolytic. They help reduce anxiety in the right amounts. Anything, you know, like people who smoke too much marijuana, which I'm not advocating for at all, they can actually have anxiety and they start low, you know, so everything's, you know, the dose is, you know, the poison or whatever they, you know, that expression. So how much you get triggers how you respond. So, but you need to have estradiol for mood stabilization and progesterone as well is neuroprotective and calming. That's why a lot of women who take oral progesterone, they say, wow, I'm so calm. It increases GABA, you sleep better. So all of these things are amazing. Guess what? When you are having these big dips and it's going down, women in the perimenopause are double the risk, double the incidence of anxiety and depression. And if they have a history in the past of like postpartum depression, PMS, or just anxiety, depressive disorders, their risk goes up 400% that they'll have a mood disorder as they're transitioning through this time into the menopause. And that's why huge numbers, percentages of women in their 40s are put on mood stabilizers and antidepressants. And it's like, hey, guys, how about some hormones? So here's like sort of a trick, like part of the reason or like the reason why you get these crazy swings and it's going down is because the brain is sensing I don't have enough estrogen. And then it's like, now I have too much. Now I have too little. Now I have too much. (laughs) So, you know, the brain is like, I'm trying my best to get this regulated. These ovaries are not cooperating, you know? So um, if you give some estradiol, so that the brain always has the feeling, and it's true, you know, it's not a phony feeling. It's like that's this body, this woman's body has enough estradiol. I don't need to put out a crazy amount of FSH by stimulating the pituitary. By sort of stabilizing things, the brain won't feel the need to overstim and then understim and then overstim and then understim. So giving perimenopause, and this is not conventional, this is not, and this doesn't make any sense, but this is not, they'd rather give antidepressants and tranquilizers and gabapentin and all these other drugs that have a lot of side effects and negative effects that they're willing to give those drugs rather than give the body what it's crying out for. Like, how about a little stability with some hormones here? And if you do that, you can totally change the paradigm of what perimenopause is like. But, you know, rather than shutting down the ovaries, I mean, that's another option. You go on birth control pills and some women like that, but they're not realizing that that is actually not a health pill, you know, because it's like taking that ground up plastic cup and then swallowing it every day. And I know that sounds so crazy, but it isn't, you know, it's really an endocrine disruptor. In fact, you can go to toxicology.gov. That's part of the NIH, National Institutes of Health. And you'll see every component, every ingredient in a birth control pill officially listed as endocrine disruptor. I'm just calling a spade a spade. I don't want to take them. I get enough of them just by, you know, breathing the air and, you know, eating food that I can't help. It's packaged in plastic, you know, like you can buy the most expensive grass-fed beef and by law, they have to ship it to you from another state 
encased in plastic. <laughs> it's like, what the heck? You know, you can go to a store and you get organic apples and they're all encased in plastic, you know, individually. And that we'll talk about waste. Don't do that. Don't buy apples in their own individual plastic containers. Okay. Please be an environmentalist. Our planet will thank you. And so will future generations. But, and your own health will thank you because plastic is not like what's the minimum daily requirement of mercury? Oh, zero. <laughs> you know, you don't need any plastic. It's not considered a nutrient that you need. You, know, you have an RDA. <laughs> you know, like how much should you get every day? So, you know, we want to avoid that because that just compounds the problem. I can tell you for perimenopausal women, if they have a high toxic load um, on top of having hormonal crazy fluctuations, but it's an exciting time. <laughs> you know, you can certainly say with mood swings. And of course, it translates into lots of sleep issues. Oh, my gosh. Because, you know, talk about the neurotransmitters. It turns out that estradiol is critical for serotonin neuron function. Serotonin is made in the brain. It's also made in the gut, as we know, but it's made it's made in bones. It's made in a lot of places. You know, everything is multitasking. But in the brain, serotonin is very important. And it's like for mood and also works on cognition as well. And serotonin is the precursor to melatonin, which is not optional as a very potent, like the most potent um, renewable antioxidant in the body. And of course, related to sleep. And that's why when you are sleeping, if you go to bed at a reasonable time at 2 a.m., you have this giant, giant surge of melatonin, which is so wonderful. And at the same time, you have this big blood flow surge to the brain and all of that, but it isn't gonna happen if you're not having proper sleep and you don't have enough serotonin produced and so on, which is what's happening in women because you need to have the proper hormones to make these neurotransmitters properly. And that's like not a little matter. Acetylcholine, which is the neurotransmitter involved in cognition. In fact, that's the neurotransmitter they're trying to increase with Alzheimer's drugs like Aricet, but doesn't really work. But Nevertheless, that's the attempt. That's the theory. And so acetylcholine is also critical. And dopamine, dopamine receptors don't work properly without estradiol. And we can go on. I mean, these are not little things. And so all of this is related. So you have mood problems, you have sleep problems, and the immune system, every immune cell, you know, because of pregnancy, you have to regulate the immune system, you have to downregulate the innate immune cells and, and so on during pregnancy, so kill the fetus. So all the immune cells, every single immune cell and women are robust. They have a bigger immune system, like more aggressive and responsive immune system than males. And that's why women survive infections and sepsis better than males up till menopause and a little bit more just because we've got that extra X chromosome, another story for another day, but we're we're a little special because we have two X chromosomes and men only got one. So that actually gives us an edge in survival. That's one of the, also the reasons why we tend to live a little bit longer, but we live a lot worse. That's the problem. Women have way more chronic disease than men. You know, unfortunately I had to detail that in my book, (laughs) you know, it's kind of little, but I tried to make everything up, you know, like happy because we can do something about it. It's not all bad news, but when you look at like who has more joint replacements, osteoarthritis, women who has 80% of the osteoporotic fractures, women who has twice at least as much mood disorders, sleep problems, women, you know, who has more gastroesophageal reflux after menopause, women by age 65, who has more strokes, ruptured aneurysms, women 
who has two and a half times or more the amount of Alzheimer's disease? Women, come on. We live a little longer, but oh my gosh, we have way more chronic disease. And once you hit 65, 75% of women have high blood pressure. Once you hit rather 65, at age 65, 75% of women have high blood pressure. By age 75, it's 85% of women have hypertension. When you develop, when you go through perimenopause, what else happens? Insulin resistance and impaired gut barrier, leaky gut. So the gut microbial population varies depending on your hormonal status. And this has been proven. This isn't like, this is not not conjecture. This is proven that when you have altered hormones, as you go through perimenopause, the microbial population in the gut changes and not for the better. So by not having the right microbes, then this leads down another whole chain of events. You don't produce the proper metabolites, the short chain fatty acids that include acetate, propionate, and butyrate. And they're involved in signaling to the brain, signaling to the liver. And butyrate in particular has binding sites on the vagus nerve, which is a huge part of the autonomic nervous system, which, and the vagus nerve stimulates the production of the neurotransmitters for the parasympathetic or calming part. So women after menopause and the perimenopause, they're kind of upregulated into a higher stress state because their parasympathetic is like more offline, but the sympathetic ganglion are going gangbusters. So they're much more in a stressed state. So anxiety grows. Cortisol is produced in greater quantities, the stress hormone from the adrenal gland. And what does cortisol do? Well, in chronic elevated production amounts, it further causes leaky gut, impaired gut barrier. It alters immune function and creates more pro-inflammatory state and dysregulates the circadian rhythm, which is already getting dysregulated because estradiol from the ovaries is also a key regulator of the circadian rhythm. So basically all women, as they transition into menopause, they're living a life of jet lag. So it's like you're you're traveling across the United States every other day. That is not good. Actually, I did that when I did all those deliveries, all those nights. That wasn't good for me. I think that's why I had that early menopause. Like it wore out my ovaries. They actually show that you can, when you have inflammation in your body, it's in the ovaries too. They've actually done like take out fluid from the follicle. It's all full of inflammatory cells. So, and that it prematurely ages the ovaries which is so bad for us. So we do not want to have this happen, you know, but we have to have menopause. We can't stop it. I mean, you can delay it a little bit if you eat lots of vegetables and have the perfect lifestyle. Like unlike me, you know, you might have a little bit like maybe two years later, but it's inevitable. Like you can yoga yourself forever and you're not going to stop menopause. You may delay it a year or something like that. And we do have tricks, by the way, for women who are like heading towards the menopause and they still want fertility. So, you know, there's a few tricks in the book to try to get the ovaries to get a little bit more life in them, but just so long. So, but we can do so much understanding this transition and doing things to help women. And by the way, phytoestrogen foods are amazing. There's um, Neil Bernard, who's a vegan cardiologist. I don't agree with everything, but I do love his study on this one. And he gave women like a, a cup of soy like whole soy every day for 12 weeks. And these were women who had terrible night sweats and hot flashes. At the end of 12 weeks, they were almost completely eradicated in all the women because phytoestrogens are nature's gift to women. 
And phytoestrogens are in all plant foods. It's just a question of degree and type. So the famous ones are soy. And I always have to defend soy, whole organic soy, non-GMO. Whole organic soy is a definite health food. It's also a fertility food, but not processed soy, soy pretending to be something else, you know, like cheese or burgers or something. <laughs> no, no soy hot dogs, please. So that has in it isoflavones. That's a type of phytoestrogen. And then flax seeds, they're pretty famous, you know, and people do seed cycling for fertility, although cycling is not necessary. There's no data on that, but there is seeds are good because they're phytoestrogens. They help the ovaries. They help the brain. They're very good. And the one that's famous is flax seeds. They have a type of phytoestrogen called lignans. But all seeds, all nuts, all grains, you know, all um, beans, legumes, like soy is a legume, they all are phytoestrogens. And then like fruit, like red grapes, they have resveratrol. That's actually a phytoestrogen. Pomegranates, which has, you know, has fame as a superfood. Pomegranates have ellagic acid, another phytoestrogen from which drive urolithins, A and B. So most all the foods that are known as superfoods and health foods, oh, they're really phytoestrogens, these magical ingredients that are not estrogens, but they combine to estrogen receptors and help to make the body in every organ system healthier. But by combining lifestyle approaches like what you eat and exercise, which will trigger the production of the sirtuins as well as fasting, exercise is known as a fasting mimetic. You know, it like mimics the same effect, like that little stressor on the body. But none of these things work properly in an absence of these beautiful ovarian hormones. And it's not just having them. You have to have a physiologic level. And ultimately, I'm hoping, I'm trying to get into a study going to look at mimicking the menstrual cycle. And that's been talked about for 20 years, but we have no data. We don't know how to dose it. We, you know, we have to have data. We can't just be mavericks and do whatever the heck we want. But, you know, it, when you know physiology, when you know the ups and downs of the genes like tumor suppressor genes that are triggered by the different levels, the up and down regulation of receptors, that it's not just having hormones. It's the rhythm of hormones. It's like, just like we talked about in the beginning with food. It's not just what you eat. It's when you eat, you know, we always, everything is timed. We always want to do things, you know, at the right time. It's like, we want to eat. We want to not eat. You know, we want to have hormones and then we want to have lower hormones, upper, like the beautiful rhythmic menstrual cycle. You know, it's not the same level all the time. And it does turn on and off genes. You know, these hormones work to, you know, with gene expression and turn on and off genes. And then the genes in turn make the enzymes, like the sirtuins, and they're involved with the coenzymes. And it's just a, a beautiful, amazing story. But this story does not have the ultimate happiest ending if you don't have those hormones. So that's why I defend the defenseless. I defend soy. You know, I, do, I used to have to defend fat, but I don't have to do that anymore. You know, and now I have to defend carbs, but only whole carbs, you know, non-processed carbs. And I have to defend estradiol, estrogen in that form, and real progesterone, because these hormones, starting with the women's initiative, I mean, it just took us down the worst possible road of misunderstanding, and then I call it mistreatment of women. So they're not getting informed consent. Every woman can decide, I do, I don't want to have hormones. It's an individual choice, but how can you make an intelligent choice if you don't even have the foundational information on which to base it. 
And that's what they're not getting. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. I so agree. And it's interesting as I was taking notes during our conversation and referring to oral contraceptives as endocrine disruptors and how many women of my generation took years and years and years of oral contraceptives to control our menstrual cycle or our symptoms, not realizing that we really never got informed consent. And the same goes for hormone replacement therapy. And I love your book, Menopause, 50 Things You Need to Know. And I even told Dr. Gersh before we started recording, I said, there were things in here that I didn't know. And I'd like to think I'm fairly savvy with the research, Mm -hmm. including things like body odor changes. I know, because- um, the, all changes. the microbiomes, like that's like the like once you know that estradiol, you know, we'll just say estrogen is key to every organ system functioning, and that includes the microbiomes of every organ system. I mean, we now know the gut, and most women now know well, and who are in our business, they know the vaginal microbiome, but they often forget things like the eyes like the skin and the microbes that live on the skin, the way that they metabolize sweat and so on, and how we even produce sweat will lead to different scents. And it's so funny because anytime when people go into like an old aged home, you know, there's like a different smell. It's like this place smells old. 
you know, and now, now we know, but, you know, and what's also interesting is pheromones. Well, you know, I don't really talk about that, but because it's not really a menopausal thing, but pheromones are those invisible scents that animals have, insects have that attract the other sex and also help you to be attracted. And when women are on oral contraceptives, it, and also in menopause, they stop producing pheromones, the sexual, the like mysterious, like magical sexual attractant. And honestly, I can't prove this, but I think that that is underlying a lot of male behavior that when they have like a midlife woman in their life, um, whether, you know, partner, wife, and then they suddenly start being attracted to another woman that they don't even know why, because it's not like conscious. It's like how we're programmed you know, because we are in the animal kingdom, even though we like to think we're computers or something, but we're really animals in the animal kingdom. And we have programmed systems. And the men naturally are attracted to these female pheromones. And the wife or the partner no longer has them. And women on birth control pills don't have them. And so the men, like they're genetically programmed, follow the scent, you know, like, and poof, and before they know it, they're in an affair. And they didn't really even want to. It's just that they were no longer like physiologically attracted to their partner. And they've actually done studies. This is like peer-reviewed studies that women on oral contraceptives often do not know how to choose the right partner. And they that's not good. They end up, you know, choosing the wrong person and then they all have miserable marriages or to get divorced. So these are natural things like animals in the wild, like how do they pick their partners, you know, and they actually it's through these magical things and they somehow they're designed to get people to be with the right person or the right, you know, the right partner. So anyway, I think they actually did a study. This is so interesting. They took women's panties when they were ovulating and they rubbed it onto a chair, one chair in a room and put the chairs in a circle and they changed the position of that one rubbed chair. For, with the panties. And I mean, these were clean panties. They just were worn by a woman who was ovulating. And then they got in a bunch of young 20 something males and they thought they were coming on a pretense to like do a movie, a movie preview. And they were going to like critique the movie. And they said before, let's just take a seat anywhere in the circle. And one guy would come in first He and they pick any seat, just pick any seat. They're all in a circle. He would always sit down on the one where the panty was rubbed. And he had no idea why. So how amazing is that? So this is my personal theory that when women lose their hormones and they lose their pheromones, their spouses and other and themselves, part of losing sex drive is they're not putting out their pheromones. They don't perceive the pheromones of the men either. It's like, eh, it's like all lost. But if you get on hormones, you're going to recreate that those pheromones so that you'll be more attracted to your partner, the partner will be more attracted to you. Well, you know, because you know how there are so many times when women are going through menopause and they've been married for like 25, 30 years and suddenly they get divorced. Like, you know, this happens all the time. I say, like, what is with this? Like, you know, they always say, well, the kids grew up and left, but it's like, maybe it's because they don't have hormones anymore, you know? So, because hormones are destiny. They control our brains, our sex drive. Estradiol is big on sex drive, you know, and oxytocin. That's another like hormone slash peptide. Its receptors and its production are dependent on estradiol. So there you go. Just another one. Yep. So, you know, getting back to body odor. Yes, <laughs> that's a hormonally related thing. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. And and like I said, your book, Menopause, 50 Things You Need to Know, is a great adjunct to navigating perimenopause into menopause. I could speak to you for hours, but I know you have patience to see. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you. We'll make sure we link up all of your accounts and your books and your last podcast that we did together focused on PCOS. It's such a gift to be able to connect with you and share your brilliance with our listeners. Well, it's my joy to be with you here. And so I'm still old fashioned doctor. I have a brick and mortar. I'm actually talking to you from one of my exam rooms. And so my practice is called the Integrative Medical Group of Irvine in sunny Southern California in Orange County, where I see patients all the time. And I can do telemedicine. It depends on the state and different circumstances and so on. But I do um, can get started with just about anyone anywhere with telemedicine, wherever you are, and then we can take it from there. And then I have just my own little Instagram that I have that I'd love for you to follow me. You know, I'm not sure where the future will go, but right now that I write books, I do lots of lectures, you know, I enjoy being on programs and podcasts and so on. And I have my little Instagram and I'm trying to write more blogs. But and most of the time, I am a, you know, working Joe doctor, I see patients one on one. And I try to make each individual woman's life better. Well, I'm so grateful for you and your friendship. Thank you again. My pleasure. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 